Hey guys, it's Casey, uh, not Liat, as the typical ad that you hear. I wanted to come on and tell you guys about our audio task list. It's something that we are so incredibly proud of because it took us 3,494 hours to complete, all to bring you eight hours of the bitches talking the task list. Um, we are so proud of this product and it's available on our website. You can get it for one month access, two month access, or four month access. We break down every single item from FK1 all the way through K. It's everything you need while you're driving or doing whatever it is, working out. You can listen to the bitches all the time. Go check it out. www.studynotesaba.com. It's behavior, bitches. Hey, guys. It's Liat. And Casey. And we are here with something we've never done before. It is episode 69.5. We weren't ready to give up the number 69 yet because 69 comes once out of however many episodes you do. And it was just so needed for what we're talking about today. But Casey, what rhyme do you have for us for 69.5? 69.5, come again and make me feel alive. Ooh, meow, Casey. <laughs> I know we just had a little bit of foreplay and getting you hot and bothered for today's episode, but today we are going to get hot and heavy. Nicholas Ither is back with us. And today I am going to ask every question that I have about fetishes. Um, I told Casey that I would... Um, really take over this episode in terms of asking questions because I said, we can't do an outline for this. I just have so much to effing ask. So here we are. But before we get started, I need some reinforcement to get going for today. So Casey, what is our review of the day? All right. So there's been a ton of new awesome ones that we will get to. I was just, this one made me laugh. <laughs> I, was just, I don't know if they forgot to write the rest or what, but I just love their name. Um, so it, their name, it's the third behavior bitch. So I would, I can't wait to meet you. And, uh, the title is just hi, five stars. And the review is yes. Yes. You love us. Yes. We rock. I want to know. So reach out, send me a DM on Instagram at the behavior bitches podcast. Actually, it's just at behavior bitches podcast. The third behavior bitch. Can't wait to hear from you. Love you. Let us Need know it. who you are. All right. So. Today, behavior principles will be continued on from last time, and I'm sure a lot more are going to come up, as they always do. But today, since we're talking about fetishes, I think it's important that we operationally define it as behavior analyst. So, Nicholas, oh, first of all, welcome back. I should have introduced you back in the first place. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Um, and... So fetishes, can you tell us, I don't know if I should have warned you ahead of time that I was going to ask you to operationally define it, but I want you to do your best to operationally define what a fetish is. Oh, wow. You're going to get me in trouble with the community. Now, um, okay. So I've never had to just sit down and operationally define fetish. Um, I have defined specific ones for, for specific clients. Um, hmm. Okay. Well, uh, I would say then 
that we would have to maybe split the definition um, because you would have um, diagnosable paraphilias um, versus uh, just what we would commonly call fetishes. Um, fetish traditionally means fascination around um, an object or uh, a specific action. Um, oftentimes involves objectification even within that action. Um, and so that we could look at as sort of fetishes. So any sexual act that involves fascination with an object or uh, a person being objectified could be considered a uh, fetish. Um, if we were then to separately categorize um, diagnosable uh, and illegal paraphilia, paraphilia, I would say diagnosable is when it causes distress in the individual, um, and then illegal uh, really comes down to an issue of consent in almost all cases. Um, so, you know, involving children or animals um, or people who are not consenting, um, then obviously that's going to fall more in that category. So you've really got to look at like you have fetishes in general. They become diagnosable if they cause you distress or if they are illegal as as a paraphilia um, for the DSM. Do fetishes always have to be sexual? So that's an interesting question because that really comes down to how do you define sexual? Mm -hmm. uh, that's true. Instance, uh, you know, there are people out there who get off to uh, balloons popping. Mm -hmm. um, and for them, it's an incredibly sexual experience. But for others watching it, it would just look like somebody popping a balloon, um, unless you really paid attention to their body language and saw that they were like becoming like, you know, oh, orgasmic, little O-face-ish. That was an um, awesome O-face, by the way. <laughs> I feel like you. I know Did you, you so much more. Not when you were doing the O-face, it was right before and I wish <laughs> I had gotten the photo of that. <laughs> do it again, do it again. <laughs> no. No, that's not. I would never do that to you. Special moment. Uh, no, <laughs> you can't force the O. Um, you can't. Okay, so, so, uh, so yeah, fetishes. Um, one thing that I really think is interesting is that most people, if they were going to kind of define a fetish in their own mind, they might think of it as something unusual, something taboo, something that people don't do, um, or or don't do a lot of. Um, but the interesting thing is that uh, there's really a lot of, uh, of people who engage in fetishes um, and who have fetishes that maybe they don't allow themselves to engage in is probably even higher. Um, but there are a lot of people who engage in fetishes. Um, and one thing that's really neat is uh, that pornography allows people to explore fetishes without having to engage in them themselves. So you can get an idea kind of uh, just in terms of what are people a little bit into or curious about. If you look at Pornhub's data, I love Pornhub's data section. Have you ever been there? No, but no. I've been to Pornhub. I didn't know they had a data section. That's oh, my amazing. gosh. Yes. They have I'll put it in the show notes, guys. They, they work with uh, the Kinsey Institute kind of um, in different uh, regards for studies. Um, and uh there is amazing data. Um, so they, it's called Pornhub's Year in Review. So every year they break down all the data. And I mean, just a ton of different visuals and different breakdowns of data um, from across the world. 
you get an idea of what people in different countries are looking at. It's really neat to look at that and compare it against cultural issues. And like, so for instance, like Brazil, um, it's basically, you know, in essence, illegal to be trans um, in Brazil. Um, it's very, very dangerous. Um, the murder rate of, of trans uh, women is just in, insanely high in Brazil. Um, it's high everywhere, um, but insanely high in Brazil. And then it's so interesting to go into Pornhub's year in review. I can't remember if it was 2018 or 2019, but trans was like the number one searched topic. Like I was just like, okay, so this is what people are looking at. And then so socially, they're freaking out about it. Uh, because Interesting. I actually wonder if there's any effect on the MO because something's forbidden as well. I wonder if that ever increases something. Like if someone tells me not to do something, I want to do it more. Not saying that like they don't genuinely have this interest, but I, I just think it'd be an interesting study about restricting. So it's never been done through ABA, but if you look in the work of Justin Lemeler, um, Justin Lemeler, uh, he is mainly a researcher with Kinsey Institute. Um, he also does uh, does have his own like blog. He's got a Vice um, blog. He's got a Psychology Today blog. It's really well known. Uh, but he uh, he did uh, the science of sexual fantasy and really really amazing work. Looking and he worked with Pornhub uh, and they really were able to break down uh, just kind of this model that works so well within ABA framework and works so well within an ACT framework. And I'm wishing I could screen share with you right now. Um, but basically, I'm going to go ahead and I, you won't be able to see it, but I'll be able to talk about it. So I'm going to pull up this model uh, because it's like so, so crazy to me. Um, so, and then I have something so, so interesting to ask you. Yeah, absolutely. Please do. No, you go first. Well, I'm going to look up this model so that I can describe it. So if you want to ask me while I'm... Okay, so I, I think I want, to, I want to play a little game. You know, I try to throw some games in here always just to keep things uh, fresh and exciting. You know, kind of equivalent. I'm kind of generalizing from the bedroom, kind of trying to keep things fresh and exciting, but here on the podcast. So I, when I was looking up things for this episode today... I was looking up fetishes and I came across an article. So we're going to play a game. I'm going to tell you what the fetish is called and you guys are going to guess what it has to do with. Okay. This is okay. a little game we're doing to start. All right. Okay. All right. First one we have is acrotomophilia. This is good Greek root practice. I think breaking things apart. Did you say agro or acro? No, acro. A-C. Oh, wow. This one has not popped up in my practice, at least not anything that anybody has specifically asked for help with. Hmm. Oh, I guess, and I was on mute. Ah, <laughs> I guess acrobatics. Okay, that does sound sexy, but the answer is arousal to amputees. So I was thinking like, since I lost three fingertips, maybe like that could count as me being sexy to someone, I'm not sure. But then there's apotemnophilia, arousal to oneself as an amputee. Interesting. Okay, here is another one. Let's see if you know this one. Chasmophilia. Chasmophilia? Mm-hmm. 
I want to get out my list of paraphilias here. <laughs> I'm trying so hard not to dig into my computer. Fetishes to charismatic people. I like your guesses, Gaze. <laughs> Can I hear it again? Chasmophilia. Oh, wow. No, I do not. Don't have a, a good guess here. I'm terrible with uh, with Greek roots. <laughs> no, but I think some of these are hard. Like the philia part, I could do the <laughs> root of that. So it's arousal to caverns, crevices, and valleys. Okay. Huh. Caverns, crevices, and valleys, that would be in the body, right? Well, I don't know. Is it also like, does it generalize to like valleys in California? Perhaps. I mean, what if, you know, what if those two mountains next to each other look like a fantastic set of boobs? I was just at Acadia and there is a, um, it's called the bubbles, I think. And they, yeah, my husband and I were both like, that looks like, it's like a nice pair of tits. Like <laughs> it was really cool. <laughs> All right. Here's another one. Don't worry. I won't do too many, but this is just a really fun game for me. I feel like I'm going to do something that you might actually know. <laughs> Catopatronophilia. Cato No, I don't think I know that one. Casey? Um, cats of Patreon, if you're... <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> this is a razzle to oh, sex wait. and... Does this start with a K? Yeah. Okay. Uh, uh, oh, come on, I do know this one. No, I feel like you would know this one. No, 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 no. What's Jeffrey music? This is okay. Yeah, no, I know this one. Mirrors. Yes. Mirrors. Woo! <laughs> Sex in front of mirrors. Okay, we are. Uh, okay, I think do... I, I think I, that's a fetish for me. Yeah. You, it is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, okay, what, enough, what about necrophilia? Okay, well, obviously, I'm gonna know that one. That's a pretty common one. Really. Commonly known, not yeah, commonly not engaged in. <laughs> you know it, Casey? Mm hmm What is it? It's uh, a, a attraction to dead people, right? Yeah, yeah. corpses. I've yeah. heard of necrophilia. I've definitely heard of that. Okay, I'm going to throw one at you that you've okay. probably never heard. Vor. B-O-R? No, V-O-R. -E. Voyagerism. V-O-R-E, vor. V-O-R-E. Um, attraction to Intersections in math, the vortex. Those are sexy. Right, yeah. right angles. So uh, <laughs> it's basically uh, being aroused by the idea of eating someone or having someone eat you. Um, and oftentimes doesn't look like cannibalism, but looks more like eating little teeny tiny people. And so um, actually a lot of like vor porn is like eating gummy bears and being really like seductive with it and things like that. That's cool. Or like eating Polly Pockets. Oh, I'm sure that that would be out there. Um, I haven't run across it myself, but that sounds like an ideal, uh, <laughs> an ideal thing to do. Uh, yeah. Okay. Let me do one last one, but there's just so many effing good ones here. I like, um, Interesting. Teratophilia. When you say toe, are you saying like T-E-R-A-T-O-E? Teratophilia. 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 It's starting with a T. 
T-E-R-A-T-O-P-H-I-L-I-A. Nothing. Arousal to the congenitally deformed. Okay, this is, okay, so my point is this game was so fun in my (laughs) head, but before we get more into this, I think what's really interesting is I, I know on Instagram before, or every now and then I do this challenge of like, what's the most unique reinforcer you've seen used with a client, right? And someone be like, a piece of grass, um, you know, a picture of Mari Povich, or like really weird or interesting things you see. No, nah, how about uh, helping your, or having your client reinforce themselves by coming home, putting on a nice, warm, snug diaper and then peeing into it? Okay, exactly, right? And this is the same shit Mm -hmm. that we are all reinforced by different things. Like one of these sounded terrible to me. It's like causing like, like, like being arousal to like being like psychologically distressed or like, I was like, when I'm like feeling stressed, that's like the last thing I feel is sexual, but it's just everyone's different. Everyone is different. Yeah, we all have different, uh, you know, histories of reinforcement and punishment. We all have um, different value systems that impact our behavior and how we see the world, um, different beliefs that impact how we see the world and our place in it. Um, and so a lot of those things can come into it. But one thing that's really interesting that's been coming out more and more um, as more and more kink research is being done is that a lot of, a lot of kink is just kind of found and is not like a response to trauma. Like I think the old school kind of way of looking at any paraphilia, any fetish was that it was diagnosable, it was a problem, it needed to be gotten rid of, and that the person would want it gotten rid of because it was some way of dealing with the trauma. But that's not the reality. Uh, You know, over half of people who come to kink say that they found it. Like it's not one of those things of like, I, you know, I woke up one day and because I, I was hurt by this instance, I'm now attracted to this thing. It's, I was horny and I found this thing and I was like, huh. And then I tried it and then I was like, oh, and now I'm into it. <laughs> that seems to be most people's journey into kink. Like there was an MO, maybe I was deprived of sex. Maybe I didn't realize that the whiteout on my desk was an SD. And I tried it out, and now I I'm a, I have white outophilia. There, there you go. Uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, so, on that note, um, if you ever are going to be putting um, any sort of like chemicals on your body as part of your sexual intimacy, please don't use white out. Um, they do make spreadable body chocolates and, and things like that. If you are going to use body chocolate, don't use brown on the booty hole unless that's something that you do want to incorporate into your role playing. Um, but otherwise it can be a kind of a turn off, um, learn that the hard way. Um, so, uh, <laughs> so we, um, we definitely have, uh, these MOs that form, but something that Justin came up with Justin Lemler again, to go back to kind of his model. So he recognized, um, through his practice, uh, and, and clients that he had been working with, um, that some some patterns were happening. So he did some research and he came up with this model. And in essence, as uh, as arousal, he calls it the arousal factor. 
and the disgust factor. First, I'm going to start talking about it the way he does, then I'm going to put it into ABA terms. So he says arousal factor versus disgust factor. As the arousal factor goes up, you're turned on. You're, you're, let's say you're in front of the computer for Pornhub. <laughs> you're, you're getting ready to engage in some solo sexual behavior, or maybe uh, you're with a partner um, and things are starting to get a little bit more intense. As your arousal factor goes up, your values are going to go a little bit less uh, into play. Um, you're not going to be disgusted or repulsed by things that are counter value as much as you normally would. So as your, as your arousal factor goes up, your disgust factor goes down. And things I love are, graphs like that, by the way. Right? I, like, <laughs> I love graphs when like, oh, prompted man's goes down, unprompted goes up. But this is way more interesting. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, arousal factor goes up, disgust factor goes down, and things that, that normally you would, if your arousal factor was more like baseline, you'd be like, no, not into that. That's not me. That's not who I am. Um, but if you come across it when your arousal factor is up high, then you could p potentially um, start to have some stimulus pairing there where all of a sudden this thing is now paired with your arousal. And after you orgasm, so now, you know, you've built up, you've connected a whole lot of, uh, of stimulus uh, in terms of your sensations physically as you're working yourself up or as your partner is, is working with you. Let's say your partner suggested something new. Uh, so you're engaging in the activity um, or fantasizing about engaging in the activity during sensual and pleasurable touch. Uh, you're going to, after orgasm, um, have really, really had paired those two, but then your arousal factor goes down, your disgust factor comes back up. And that's when right after your orgasm, you go, holy crap, what did I just do? Oh my God, I can't believe I just did that. Is that really what I just got off to? Oh, I better delete my history. Like, <laughs> like, oh man. That is so interesting. That just shows MOs like in that. Absolutely. Yes. I mean, so, I mean, yeah. let's not lie. We've all been there. Okay. Mm -hmm. Don't try to say you haven't. <laughs> so, so yeah, looking at this from an ABA standpoint, right? You have, uh, you have deprivation of sexual release, right? Um, you have a buildup of uh, uh, chemicals that are kind of out of balance. You're wanting that, that riding that kind of high, so to speak of an orgasm. Um, so there's your, there's your MO right there. Right. Um, you have a partner uh, suggest intimate activity or you're left alone with a the computer. There's your, uh, your uh, initial kind of um, kicking in your establishing operation. <laughs> and then um, you go onto the, the website or, um, or your partner starts suggesting things. You're becoming more aroused. And so the, um, the, the, Stimulus has more power over you, right? The stimulus is becoming more powerful. It's developing more con stimulus control. Um, and then when you actually find uh, whatever it is that you end up engaging and watching or engaging and doing, uh, then now all of this kind of comes together. Now you have an SD for a behavior that results in a really powerful reinforcer through orgasm. 
Um, and so then you get an immediate punisher from yourself where you're like, oh my God, why did I do this? But the crazy thing is, and this is what was so neat about um, Justin Lumler's work, people who fixated on that punisher who really beat themselves up over what they looked at were the ones who were more likely to come back and do it again. Interesting. People, people who were like, oh, that led to a good orgasm. Okay. And then they were just like, that's just one of the things I can look at. Um, <laughs> so would that be like, um, like self, uh, when you, I don't know, put yourself down or you punish yourself, self-punishment is actually reinforcing to that person. So maybe it's the punishment that was more reinforcing to go back to that. Could it be, or could it be more like if we look at relational frame theory and if we look at like the um, kind of that, that act hexaflex and we're looking at like fusion, mm -hmm. uh, getting really fused to the idea oh, that, yeah. that, that you had no control, mm -hmm. truly believing that this porn controlled you or that this partner coerced you, um, believing that you were not the active party here. Um, and so then you feel helpless. You feel like it's going to happen again. And what happens then? Well, you've just set yourself <laughs> up to do it again. Yeah. Um, and so that, that kind of triggers those re repetitious patterns. What's been really interesting is that the most research done for, um, for, you know, what's called by people inaccurately, by the way, as porn addiction. Um, it's not an addiction. I have a copy of the DSM-5 on my desk. This is not in here. That is There's, the smallest looking DSM-5 I've ever seen. It's a desk-sized version. The print in it is tiny, too. <laughs> What'd you say? The print in it is tiny, too. But oh, I thought you said something inappropriate, and I was like, oh, oh interesting, about no, being tiny, too. I was like, love it. Okay. Oh, no. <laughs> nope. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's almost uh, 400 pages. It's the full, full DSM guide. Um, but yeah. Uh, sex addiction's not in there, uh, and porn addiction's not in there. Why are those not in there? Because those are compulsive behaviors that you are convincing yourself that you have no control over when you really just got bad impulse control. Uh, blaming the porn or blaming other people for impulsive sexual behavior uh, is a nice scapegoat. <laughs> yeah. it's a scapegoat, and it makes people feel good in the moment to be like, oh, it's not my fault. I have an illness or, you know, like I'm addicted. Um, and so then they use um, these addiction treatment models for sex and addiction treatment models for porn viewing. And guess what has a really, really high rate of return? People come back over and over and over for those. The sex addiction uh, treatment models don't work. Uh, porn addiction treatment models don't work. The only thing that's really shown um, a high level of, of promise is mindfulness and, uh, and learning self-control, um, owning that the porn does not have power, mm -hmm. uh, that, that anything has power when you just So it's kind of like a cop-out a little bit, giving it the, like saying, oh, it has power over me, like I have no control. Very, very much so. And people might get mad at me. I might get hate mail for it, but, uh, but that's just the reality of it. Um, and then there's, there's a lot of different, um, a lot of the anti-porn research and, and porn addiction research. If you go digging through, it's funded by groups like Stop Masturbation Now or NoFap 
Um, it's funded by uh, universities that are private Baptist universities or Mormon universities. You know, if John Hopkins, and, uh, or sorry, not John Hopkins, um, what is it? The, uh, what is the Baptist University in Salt Lake City? Yeah, uh, Bishop uh, uh, Brigham Young. Thank you, Brigham Young. If they were to put out sex research, I would not read it. Like, <laughs> unless it was, you know, these probably like biased to want to see a side they want to see. Very much so. I, I, I might look at their, I would look at their research topic, but if they were going to talk about a general topic and not like a specific issue within Mormonism, I probably wouldn't want to look at that because it's going to have some bias to it. Uh, you know, going in, uh, I've had, um, interventions where, you know, we utilize regularly at Empowered uh, pornography as an alternative behavior. And um, I've had guardians, uh, funders, people get really upset with me over this and bring me research that shows that I am wrong. And all of their research ends up coming from these different non-reputable sources um, or sources that potentially have bias. Uh, when we look at non-biased sources, everything is either inconclusive or in favor of. So it's really an interesting thing where there is not, to my knowledge, any unbiased source or study that shows that pornography is harmful or inherently addictive. Same with sex. I mean, sex is an unconditioned reinforcer. <laughs> like everyone, like, right? It's like, well, it's an interesting thing because sex is not a reinforcer for everyone. You have asexuals out there. Um, and, uh, and, you know, looking at kink, um, kinks, uh, those are conditioned. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you either, uh, you either experienced it and went, ooh, this is nice. I kind of like this. And then you did it. Or you did just kind of wake up one day wanting it. Um, but if you did wake up one day wanting it, uh, then the likelihood is that... Um, it's either going to be reinforced or punished when you enact on it. Um, so really, everything in life, any behavior is going to be conditioned to some degree. Yeah. Yep. Even that breathing. We say breathing is an unconditioned reinforcer. But now that you're thinking about your breath, what are you doing to it? You're controlling it. Um, <laughs> so uh, it's just an interesting thing. That's what I was thinking the other day about blinking. I was like, blinking's like a respondent behavior, but then I had something in my eye and I was intentionally blinking to try to get it out because I, I knew it works in the past. All right. Now I need to ask you another question and I have forgotten the acronym, but it is the BLD baby lovers diaper. Oh, adult baby eaters. lovers. Yes. Wait, what is it? ABDL, adult babies, uh, sorry, adult babies and diaper lovers. Tell us about adult baby and diaper lovers. This is a fetish that I find very interesting. And I forget what show I watched one time. And it kind of, you know, documented someone's life as like engage, uh, just doing this, or I don't know how to say it. Or was it a, uh, was it a redhead with pigtails and glasses? Maybe. Is she public probably, about it? Well, yeah. Uh, My straight addiction had a. Uh, had Is that a, where I got it? Probably. Uh, but it's uh, it's actually more common than you would think. Um, the bulk of uh, of the community is cisgendered white gay men, um, but 
it is uh, a pretty diverse community overall um, because the remainder is like incredibly diverse um, and also neurodiverse. Um, one thing that is really, really interesting about the ABDL community is they value consent so, 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 so much. They do not want to be paired in with, with pedophilia at all. These are all consenting adults who engage in what's called uh, age regression. Um, and age regression can be thought of um, both as kind of a role play, but also um, a mental health escape. Um, and so it's uh, for some ABDLs, uh, it's not even sexual. Um, for some ABDLs, it's purely that role play escape, like getting away from all of the pressures of the day. I get to come home and I can be a baby and somebody's going to take care of me. Um, and some ABDLs are not full on babies, too. Um, we want to acknowledge that in the littles category, you're going to have babies uh, of all different baby ages. So uh, again, these are consenting adults who are regressing down mentally into ages. Um, and again, it's like a role play that provides an escape. So these are not real babies that I'm talking about here. Um, but when we're this talking is interesting. Some people have a glass of wine, some have a joint, some to like escape at the end of the day, some turn into a baby. Thank you. Yes. And so, um, so with this, uh, you know, recognizing that there is a lot of pressure uh, in, in the world, um, in, in daily life, looking at, um, again, I think I find it so interesting that um, seven, what is it? Uh, no, sorry, 59% uh, of uh, ABDLs are cisgendered white gay men. So over half. What is cisgendered? I'm sorry. Oh, cisgender means uh, it, cisgender is uh, you identify with uh, gender wise, the, uh, uh, penis or the vagina that you were born with. So I'm cisgender because I was born with a penis and I identify as a man. Okay. Transgender implies that you don't, right? You're right, somewhere, okay. else, somewhere else on that spectrum. Got uh, it. Thank you. Absolutely. So, uh, uh, where was I right before that? Oh, yes. So, yeah, looking at, um, you know, cisgender white males, and then we look at the sort of uh, the overarching societal constructs um, and the idea that, like, needing to be to tough, everything, you have to be tough, you can't have emotions, you need to, you, you are the provider, um, all of this stuff. It just makes so much sense to me that that's an area that they I want. mean, probably also when you talk about, like, dominatrix type stuff, when someone wants to be like, they're usually like, I could imagine like Casey being into that because she's like such a control freak in every way that like, this is her time to let go. No, I'd be the dominator. <laughs> well, and so I want to bring up that uh, no matter what the kink dynamic, if there's going to be um, a, a dynamic of bondage and ABDL is light bondage, right? Um, you're putting somebody into diapers. You're telling somebody what to do. You're controlling the environment. Um, so it is some light, uh, light bondage there. Um, so you're usually going to have somebody who's like a dom and somebody who's like a sub. Um, well, in the ABDL community, you're going to have your littles, and then you're also going to have your middles and your bigs. So middles act like a, big kids or teenagers. They might do some of the babysitting. They might lead some of the activities. If there's no big around, they might take care of the littles. Um, the big acts very much like a caretaker. And the big uh, actually does things like diaper changes and uh, and all sorts of other stuff. A, a middle might do some diaper changing, but it's not very common. Bigs 
one thing to really note is that a big is also being taken care of by the littles. If you want to look at MOs, uh, the big needs to take care of others to feel validated and good. The littles provide that. The littles want somebody else to take care of them so they can feel validated and good, and the bigs provide that. And so without needing to go to a therapist, without needing to take drugs, their community is addressing their mental health needs. Pretty Fascinating. Awesome. Pretty awesome. Yeah, that's really that's cool. And a lot of respect for the ABDL community. I just want to throw in one behavioral concept here, but I'm also thinking, tell me if I could, I could apply this or not. So I'm thinking about a lot of behavioral contrast also. So let's say in one environment, like you're this head CEO of this company, you have to be ultra uh, masculine and doing this and this and making these huge decisions all the time, right? And like that is, I guess that's what's reinforced in one setting where like you see an extreme, you know, maybe like that negative behavioral contrast in another setting or just be more general and say behavioral contrast is, is when someone's wanting to come home and be like dominated or not have to make a single choice, like have someone change their effing diaper or like, could, could we oh, apply that? Dynamics too. Um, so, you know, uh, one of my favorite kink dynamics to explore is puppy play. Um, I really love the puppy play community and like what it does uh, for its members. So uh, in, and bigs and littles also do that. Maybe please don't. operationally define puppy play. Puppy play uh, would be uh, the fetish of um, either acting as pup or handler. Um, and like a dog. So yes. Um, so engaging in um, a lot of different activities that a dog would. Um, getting completely into the mindset of a dog um, and letting go of the world around you. And so hanging out on the floor, chewing on bones, um, asking through tricks. What kind of bones? <laughs> well, uh, that is supposed to be a pun. Um, and, uh, asking for, uh, for treats and things from the handler through tricks, um, uh, intentionally upsetting the handler if the handler leaves for too long by ripping up all of their things, uh, stuff that a dog would do. Um, and, you know, and then the handler, you know, it's like your bad dog, go get in your crate. Um, and, and then, you know, they go through that whole like dynamic. But it's really neat because um, puppies hang out together in packs. And so... Are there uh, dog fights? Um, I'm sure that uh, hasn't really come up so much, <laughs> but I'm sure that there, that there are fights within packs. Um, one thing that I do know is that they're uh, just like in a traditional dog pack, or sorry, wolf pack, you're going to have... Um, an alpha and omega and a beta. Um, but you're also going to have your handler and your handler is like above all of them. Um, so the alpha is like, you know, the handler's number one go-to and also is in charge of the other pups. Um, so if the handler's not around, the, the alpha calls the shots. Uh, and so, uh, you know, they're taking care of each other. Again, they're forming community. And one thing that uh, Nadal in 2012 um, wrote this amazing thing about microaggressions and the LGBTQ community and Gahart in uh, 2014, uh, Mastering Competencies in Marriage and Family Therapy, um, a few other people have, have, have really expressed that societally, uh, people who are LGBTQIA+, um, which includes kinksters, I want to throw out there, 
kinksters are part of the LGBTQIA+, that a plus is non-discriminatory and involves anyone who is not completely heteronormative. So if we're not heteronormative completely, we fall under LGBTQIA+. Uh, it's a very large community. So uh, recognizing then that, um, that kinksters, uh, they oftentimes have not been accepted by their, their families or their communities for uh, a variety of different things. Uh, then they potentially, they need community, they need connection, they need validation, they need those things in order to move forward um, and, and to really have some fulfillment in their lives. So they can gain that um, through what's called a family of choice. A family of choice is when, uh, when you basically form familial bonds with friends. Um, and so that kind of fulfills a lot of needs. So um, the family of choice in, in uh, puppy play would be your pack. Um, and they take care of each other. You know, they're calling in on each other. If they know that one of them is like suicidal, they might have that one come over and then like all of them sleep in the dog pile that night so that that one has lots of touch and affirmation. You know, like they, they do things to take care of, of each other. But what I want to note is that there's always in kink dynamics, especially uh, when you have like bondage dynamics, um, there is the potential for abuse um, of the dynamic. And this is why consent, consent, consent becomes such a heart of the kink community. And the kink community really as an overarching community does a lot of vetting, a lot of vetting. And then the, the more kind of um, vulnerable a kink makes you, the more vetting the community seems to do. So like- What would you say like a really vulnerable- Okay, so, so, um, like getting the shit beat out of you or something. Well, even, okay, let's go with, those are obvious. Let's go with ones that are less obvious. Let's actually go back to ABDL. So ABDL, you're engaging in regression. Um, and, uh, one thing that they have found is that the further that people engage in the regression, the, the more, um, uh, that they really get into this kind of role, the harder it is to come back and the more that they are willing to do. So like if the big tells them to do it, they're going to do it. Um, so if they're really into this and the big wants to abuse them, it's going to be very easy to. Um, and so that's something to recognize that they have submitted so much and put so much faith and hope and trust into the big that they're not making choices anymore. They're just going with it. Um, and the same thing can happen between pup and handler. Um, there was a, a pup in Seattle who died uh, just last year. Um, he had been uh, basically injecting himself with steroids and silicone and doing all of these things because his handler was telling him that, you know, he needed to look and be a certain way in order to be part of their pack. Uh, and he ended up dying from, uh, from injection. Uh, so just like recognizing that in some instances, uh, abuse does happen, but like very quickly, that guy, even so I'm, I'm seeing news articles about it, you know, and they're coming in from a standpoint of like, oh, this kink is dangerous. Whereas like in the kink community, I'm over here on FetLife and people are passing this guy's picture around. They're passing around his different profiles. They're passing around his address. They're like, do not go to this guy. This is not a good alpha or a, a good handler. Like this happened, you know, like 
things like that where the community really does try and take care of each other. Um, for pups and for, um, for littles, oftentimes they meet in public places and they get to know each other through other pups or through other littles. And then they meet bigs who have already proven their safety, right? And so like, there's a lot of vetting that happens and usually it's it's initially meeting in public at like these types of events um, but the events are hard to find uh, you know where are you going to find puppy events or uh littles events are called munches where are you going to find munches uh, but they and then, like someone people. accidentally shows up with like their real french bulldog thinking it's like an actual puppy meetup I don't know if that's ever happened, but there are there are websites and ways that people in these communities can connect with each other, just like any other community. Um, and so they kind of figure all that out. Um, even at Empowered, my agency, we held a munch. We called it Squee. Squee! Um, and it Squee. was just an What ADD does it stand app. for? Uh, no, Squee is just a sound that babies make. Um, oh! <laughs> So, Literal uh, casing. <laughs> uh, yeah, we had a had a whole party, um, and we had a, a few different littles who showed up. Um, we had different staff acting as bigs at different points in time. They wouldn't be sexual with them. We we told them this is not a sexual. This is more a mental health. Uh, we're just here to provide you with an escape experience, um, so that you can enjoy being littles. We played Fern Gully. We had story time. Um, there was a diaper changing area, but they had to change each other or themselves. We didn't get involved in that. Um, they they had a, a playpen area. There was an arts and crafts area. We bought um, animal crackers and fruit uh, sippy cups and all these different things. And it was just the cutest little thing. I love that. Fern Gully is my favorite movie. <laughs> I wanted to be her. Like, ah, I don't Fern even Gully know what that is. Oh, she saved, tried to save the forest and the um, trees. Yeah, you have to. <laughs> My question is, and you kind of touched on this, but being able to regress to baby level and then come back to your adult level, that must be a, a difficult transition. Yes. Um, and it's something that, oh my gosh, I want to go into more. Um, unfortunately, I have a client coming up. I know. We, it's crazy that we've done another hour and we could go on. So, okay, you'll be back, Nick. You're going to be back, Nicholas. 69.66. <laughs> Thank you for all of your insight into this, you know, interesting topic and, you know, just, you know, shedding some light onto it for us. Absolutely. I'm so glad that we got to talk, you know, puppy play and ABDL are two of like my favorite dynamics. So I'm so glad that we got to talk about those today. I've learned so much. So thank you. Me too. And I'm, so, I'm happy to note there's communities out there for individuals who just, you know, need a place to, to feel a part of something. And I, I think that's really important across everything, whether you're obsessed with ABA or being a puppy. Absolutely. Well, or both. Or both. There you go. Or both. All right. Thank you so much, Nicholas. You are just a light. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate you both so much for what you do. Thank oh. you. Right back at you. All right. Bye. Bye. All right, guys. You know where to find us. You could find us on Instagram at Behavior Bitches Podcast, Facebook at Behavior Bitches Podcast. You could go to behaviorbitches.com and of course, and as in of course, I mean, go do it. Go leave us a five-star review with some feedback on the Apple 
podcast app. We live for that shit. Thank you so much, guys. And as always, love you. Mean it. Hey, guys, it's Liat and Casey. We just want to take a second to let you know that if you're thinking of being a millennial like us and starting your own podcast, there is a way. You can do your show without having to become an audio editing and production wizard, because guess what? We don't know shit with that. But we have Alan at Pretty Easy Podcast who help us get started. He records our shows. He posts them. He adds awesome, awesome music and cool shit when we don't even know what he's doing. He sends us teaser episodes. He does it all. We just sit here and friggin' talk. We shoot the shit and you can record from home, your office, the park, a bathroom stall at work. It doesn't matter. He provides the complete podcast studio. All you need is a microphone and you're good. Alan caters to your schedule and gives you a producer for your show at your beck and call. He has been super flexible with our schedule. Whenever we need him, we go to Google Calendar. We just book him and he does all the hard work. It's like so incredibly easy. That's why it's probably called Pretty Easy Podcast. So be heard and have some fun podcasting like us. Go to prettyeasypodcast.com today. 